feelings and faith, the danger of the why question, and a few reflections on human sexuality. I'm meditating on some of the questions the kids at Concordia University gave me this morning. You're listening to Cross Defense. All right, welcome to Cross Defense. God be praised. It's Monday afternoon, and we are live here on Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of, of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in, in Austin, Texas. When you're in town, make sure to stop by. And every Monday afternoon, we get together to, to meditate on the Lord's Word, uh, to, to rejoice in His kindness, to consider His great love for us. I got a couple of things to talk about today. We got, got kind of a list working over here. Uh, see how this thing goes, how the program unfolds. A, a few things on my mind. We got Ash Wednesday coming up, so we might talk about that. And what is the business with the ashes? But I, but more than that, I, I was um at chapel at Concordia University in Texas. We, you know, the anytime. This is a kind of curious thing, but anytime you see a Concordia University, it's almost always affiliated with the uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And you see Augsburg, and it's associated with the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. And it's an interesting history, actually, why we have – this doesn't matter. I was over there at the chapel with the kids this morning, and I said, and I said, would you guys fill out these blank note cards with theology questions for me to consider and answer – on my stop-and-go theology. So I got a little YouTube uh, channel, by the way. If you're listening on the radio, that might be curious for you to check out. Wolfmuller1 on YouTube. There's a search for Wolfmuller. One of the series that I've been doing is stop-and-go theology. It was invented out of necessity because Austin, Texas traffic is really not good. So there's a lot of stop-and-go around here. So how do you seize the time? So I'm answering theology questions while I'm going, and these kids just gave me the greatest questions i have a i had a, a pile of about 30 questions uh that they sent me and i've been i've been looking through these questions and thinking about them and considering what the youth are thinking about these are young christian college kids that are there in chapel and meditating on the lord's word and trying to sort things out and and there's a couple of themes that really came sort of profoundly through in, in their questions. Um, I, th not all of them, but there was a lot of questions about, about feelings and the role of feelings in our Christian life. That's very interesting to me. And then there's a lot of questions that had to do with the why of difficulty in this life, like the, the why of, of struggle, the why of pain, the why of hell, the why of condemnation, the why of unbelief. A lot of you know people wrestling through wrestling through the pain of life theologically. That was another theme. And then there was a, a number of uh, questions that came around the theme of sexuality and the biblical view of marriage versus the way that the culture sees it nowadays. So I think if you guys are all right with it, I think we'll just sort of roll around on. Uh, kind of wander around, I should say, on those topics. We'll sort of just let our imaginations uh, ruminate on those on those particular themes. 
So first, the question about feelings. There's questions about what, how do I explain the feeling of the presence of God? Or, on the other hand, how do I understand when I don't feel close to God? Or what, what do you say to someone who's never felt like God was close to them? Or how do you respond to the always changing feelings that we have in this life? And I, I think this is a fascinating thing. I mean, I, I'm fascinated for a number of reasons. I mean, not only, I mean, I'm almost, well, I can't say I'm more fascinated in the question than, than in the biblical answer, but I am, I am very, very curious about, about what, what people are really wondering about when it comes to theology. I mean, I just, I don't want to think that the things that I sit and wonder about are the things that everybody sits and wonders about. So it's really nice. So to know that the, the, the fant- thinking about how, how to wrestle with these feelings. So let me just kind of set the stage here when it comes to feelings. Number one, our culture uh, has difficulty in uh, per- maybe precisely or say one of the major reasons that our culture has such difficulty is because it has given our own feelings uh, a place of authority. So most people are are asking themselves, "Does it feel right?" Now I don't, I don't know exactly where this comes from. It probably, I mean, people have probably trace this down. It probably goes back to romanticism, but I know for me, it goes back to the Disney movies. Because if there's a theme for every Disney movie, it's something like this: you ought to follow your heart, right? I mean, that's the idea. That's if if there's a if there's a creed that is taught by the Disney canon, it is that you ought to follow your heart. And what that means is that your feelings, and not your mind, not your reason, not any sort of external authority, but your feelings have a place of authority, and, and you should follow them. So we've been catechized in our culture to trust our feelings, to let our feelings stand in judgment over our decisions. Does it feel right? Does it feel good? And so forth and so on. And this is also not only true in our culture, but it's also true in the church. I think one of the fascinating questions that we can ask when we're thinking about theology and we're meditating on this kind of stuff, one of the fascinating questions to ask is, what is your overall picture of salvation? And, and I think that, you know, to kind of work our way into this meditation, to consider that in the, re- in the time of the Reformation, you had the major picture was the bank. The Pope had the key, and he was, dis- he was distributing uh, merit from this great treasury that's in heaven. Uh, that's that. You know, that, that's how the the salvation was being distributed. And the Lutherans came along and said, "No, no, no! It's not a bank. It's a courtroom. Jesus sits, or God the Father sits as judge, and you are brought before Him. And then the case unfolds, and we have Jesus as our advocate, arguing the evidence of His own blood, and we're acquitted for it. That's the beautiful picture of justification. And that's why these guys said that justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. It's really fantastic. But then." Modern American Christianity comes along, and it it makes the major picture of salvation the high school prom. Now, I'm not against high school proms, but look what happens. I mean, it's wild when the picture of the prom date becomes your major metaphor for salvation. It's uh, it's kind of a, well, it, it's, you know, Jesus has asked you out. He would like to be your date. But it's up to you if you're going to accept his invitation or not. 
And then if you do accept his invitation, now he's got you, but now it's all about growing in the intimacy that you have with the Lord through conversation and prayer. Remember, you have to, you can't date any, you have to spend time, you got to get to know people. I mean, this is just the thing. And so, so, so conversion and maturity and Christian growth and worship are all taken up into that picture of the prom date. And that also exalts the role of feelings. So for a lot of Christians, one of the key questions that they're asking in their lives, in their day-to-day living, is, do I feel close to God? Do I feel close to Jesus? Do I feel his presence? Do I feel his love? It's about this internal, emotive relationship. And their own feelings have a place of authority in their lives. Now, what I would like to suggest, now, one of the dangers that we have, I mean, sometimes, you know, grumpy pastors that, like, took engineering classes will come at this and say, look, that's feelings are dangerous, feelings are unsure, feelings are internal and not external, and all this sort of stuff. I mean, we'll, you know, come come down on feelings, and I, and I don't want to do that because we are feeling people. It's a huge part of who we are. The Lord has given us our emotions for good reason. And the Bible talks a lot more about our emotions and our desires than I think we often realize. I mean, just think about how the Lord talks about his own word, where he says that we should delight in the law of the Lord, that we should treasure, that we should taste. There's all this, you know, we we, we are emotive people. Our emotions are an important part of us. So we don't want to, we don't want to diminish them. In fact, in some ways, we want to exalt our emotions as, uh, as, part of God's creation, but we want to let them have the right, the right vocation. We don't want our, our emotions to have the right of judgment. Now, in some ways, neither do we want our reason or our will to have the right of judgment. We want the Lord's word to have the right of judgment. And, th- and in this way, we want to say that our feelings stand under the Lord's word. Now, this is hard for us. I was listening to someone talk the other day. In fact, perhaps even a member of my own family. (laughs) And they said the sentence, I really feel like, and then what followed was a fact. I feel like George Washington was the first president of the United States. Now, that wasn't the sentence, but that was, it was like that. I feel like George Washington was the first president. You, You feel like that? How do you feel like that? And I, what I realize is that feelings have taken on this exalted role. So we gotta ask the question as Christians, what is the proper vocation for our feelings? What is their God-allocated role? What, what, what should they do rightly if we want to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? That includes that we want to love the Lord with our emotion. We want to love our neighbor with our emotions. So we want them to have the proper, the proper station in life. So what are we to do? I think number one is to realize this is that even our emotions come under the jurisdiction of the Lord's law. In other words, our emotions are not a law, they are under the law. Now, how do I know that? Because I I read in the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. Now, covet is is an internal thing, right? If I covet something, you can't tell. You're looking at me and you're like, does he really covet those brownies? (laughs) The the answer is yes. (laughs) 
I do. But but you can't tell. You can't see covetousness. You could see murder, at least as it works its way out. You can see adultery. You can you can see theft. But covetousness. This is a this is a condition of the heart. It's a it's a an emotion really. And and even the, and this is the point that even our emotions come under the jurisdiction of God's law. So that our emotions, our feelings, have to stand to be judged. And this means, second point, that our emotions are under God's law. This means that, that our emotions have to be, our emotions have to enter into a subservient place. We, we used to talk, and I, and I think this is a helpful illustration sometimes to think about it. In the old days of the, of the higher criticism, when, uh, when they were looking at the Bible and saying, do I like that passage or not? Is that God's word or not? And they were trying to figure that whole thing out. And they would use their reason to stand above the scripture. And, and the followers of the scripture said, no, no, that's the, you're using the, the, you're using reason as a ruler rather than as a servant. That's the magisterial use of reason rather than the ministerial use of reason, and that's wrong. Reason was to be a minister of God's Word, not a master over God's Word. Well, we can say the same thing with our feelings. Our feelings were never intended to be over God's Word, but under God's Word. So that, so that our feelings come along to serve the truth of God's Word. Now, that means... And I think this is basically just like 80% of my pastoral care and pastoral conversations with people. What that means is that we can look at our own feelings and we can say, that feeling is right and good and godly and helpful. And that other feeling is wrong and ungodly and even a sin. So, for example, and, th and, and again, this is just basically like pastoral care. You say, hey, pastor, you know, I feel like... I feel like God is far from me. I feel like God has abandoned me or left me kind of out to dry. I feel like I feel like I'm barely hanging on to to, to my own Christian faith. Now these are great concerns, but we got to come back and say, now look, what? Okay, you feel like that, but what does God say? Jesus says. I do not leave you as orphans. Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus says, look, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says that he is near to you in the word that's preached. He's not hidden up in heaven or buried in the ground. He's near to you. That's what he says. And that's true whether you feel it or not. So if your feelings say that Jesus is far from you, then your feelings are lying to you because Jesus cannot lie. He cannot deceive. He only tells the truth. Or someone says, I feel like God has not forgiven me. I feel like, I feel like God is angry with me. I feel like God is punishing me because of my sin. Well, I, that's bad and we've got to talk about it, but what does the Bible say? I will remember your sins no more as far as the east is from the west. I've cast your sins into the depths of the sea. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Neither do I condemn you. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. This is the, this is the Bible promise. And if your feelings are telling you that God is far from you or not forgiving you, then your feelings are lying and we trust in the Lord's word. It's a beautiful text in First John where John says, 
He says, even if our heart condemns us, we have one who is greater than our heart. So that we can look at our feelings and we can say, ah, feelings, you're doing pretty good today. You're encouraging me to delight in the Lord's word. You're teaching me to love the things that are good. You're giving me pleasure in the things that are holy. So you're doing pretty good. Or we can say, feelings, you're angry at your neighbor. You're upset with God. You're, you're feeling all the, and we can say, feelings, you're not, you're not acting as a proper servant. And this lets us put, let's, this lets us give our feelings their proper place. It lets us understand our feelings as the servant of the truth of God's word. And that's really nice. We can experience the fullness of being a, a human being with all the ups and downs of it, but we can know that this does not, um, this does not take us from the Lord's kindness. All right, there's a way into it with feelings. We've got to take a I see the note here. We've got to take a break, uh, and we'll come back, and I want to... I want to take on this question of why, the, the why question, why of suffering, why of anguish, why of trouble in this world, what's going on there? But I want to, I want to take a look at this, at the question that we ask, because, because we think that there's some comfort in the why. That's what we'll talk about on the other side of the break. You're listening to Cross the Fence, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here. Stay tuned to the short break. We'll be right back. Hi folks, this is Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Join us for the March on the Arch, Saturday, March 7, a pro-life event for you to confess your belief that life is a sacred, sacred thing. Check-in begins at 11 a.m. and a rally at 12.30, and then marching from the West End at Planned Parenthood to the Arch in St. Louis. Check out lcms.org slash marchforlife, lcms.org slash marchforlife. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive Word and Sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide Word and Sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week, you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in, and may the intersection of Word and Work be busy on your corner. This week on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series on the words of Scripture, talking with Pastor Will Whedon about love in the New Testament. We'll get an introduction to the book of First Thessalonians with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, and we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Jesus feeding 5,000 in John chapter 6. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. All right, welcome back to Cross the Fence. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfman, the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. 
live with you this Monday afternoon, broadcasting from the Tower Studio. The bell ropes are hanging behind me, ready to be ready to be rung. Anyway, it's a great place. A lot of fun. Well, come visit come visit the Tower Studio when you're here. It's a really cool, really cool spot. Uh, we're t- we were just, I was mentioned to, if you were with us at the beginning, I was at the chapel over at Concordia University in Texas this morning. Did ch- did chapel with the kids, and I um, I passed out the note cards, and they, they sent a bunch of questions. And I noticed that there were some themes that came up in all of the questions. There was one about the... the um, the questions of feelings. There was questions about um, sexuality. We'll talk about that, I think, at the in the last segment. But then there was a bunch of questions that revolved. They were the why questions. You know, we have we, and these come up all through our lives. We just we see things. We see things in the world, and they trouble us. And and. And we look at them, and they don't because we because they don't make sense. We ask why. We assume that there's got to be something going on in the mind of the Lord that the things that we see and the things that we behold would would follow some sort of logical pattern. And sometimes, a lot of times, we simply can't connect the dots. Things don't make sense to us. We see trouble in the world, and we think, why? What's the rationale? What's the purpose? And we have this tendency from the very, very beginning to to try to explore the motives of God, or if if we don't believe in God, to explore the, the hidden logic of the universe. This goes back to the very beginning. Remember, I've been trying to put my mind around this part of the temptation of Adam and Eve when when Adam where's my bible here when Ad, when the devil comes to Adam and Eve and especially Eve in the garden and the devil tempts Eve and says god knows remember that here it is the the devil asks can't you can't you can't eat any of the fruit and, and Eve says we can eat all the fruit you don't eat except for the one in the middle don't eat it and then, and then the devil says this. This is Genesis 3, 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil wants, isn't this amazing? The devil wants to unfold the motive of God. And this is part of this why question that we always want to peel back the the rationale. We want to understand the hidden things. We want to see beneath the surface. And we think, and here's the key, we think that if we know the answer why, then we will have some comfort. Now I want to just I, I want to invite you to pause and reflect on this thing, because you, like me, no doubt have have had times in your life where you've been asking why, Lord, why, why did you let this happen? Why is this happening? Why this suffering? Why this agony? Why, why? And we're asking the question because we want comfort, and we think that the answer will give us comfort. 
That's, that's why we long for that so profoundly. But I think the scriptures are going to reveal to us that, that there's no comfort in the answer. Why, there's no comfort in the rationale. And I, and I want to suggest this for a couple of reasons, but the main one is that instead of giving us answers to these questions, like, for example, the problem of suffering or the problem of evil, the question of how can God, who who is all-powerful and all-good, let this bad stuff happen? There's no, The Bible, instead of, instead of giving us answers, it gives us promises. Stay, stay it again. God, not just Scripture, but God, instead of giving us answers, gives us promises. I want you to consider Job in this example, because it's hard to think of anyone who suffered more than Job, aside from our Lord Jesus himself. I mean, he is, Job really got it, all this trouble handed to him. He's sitting there one day, and all of a sudden he gets the news that, what, the camels are gone, and the cows are gone, and the donkeys are gone, and then and that while one servant is talking, another one comes, another one comes, and another one comes to tell him his 11 children have been killed in this accident, the tornado that knocked down the house. And then round two comes, and, jo and the Lord gives the devil, Satan, permission to touch Job's body, and so he's sitting there on the, on the coals, scraping his boils with a piece of broken pottery while his wife says, curse God and die. Whew. That is a bad week. Now, here's the thing that's often missed in the, in the book of Job, because I want to, Job starts with this line that Job was a good and upright man, righteous in, in the Lord's sight, and that's the same word that the Lord uses to describe Job to the devil. In other words, there's this conversation about Job and his righteousness happening in heaven because there's a conversation about you and your righteousness happening in heaven and me and my righteousness happening in heaven. And the Lord there declares Job to be righteous. Now, now, was Job perfect? Was Job uh, uh, sinless? Did Job do everything right? Of course not. No one, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Job, like the rest of us, inherited sin from Adam and Eve. He was guilty, and yet the Lord declared Job to be righteous. And how did Job know that he was righteous? Now, there's a danger here. I mean, because this is a key question for us. If the Lord has declared you and I to be righteous, how are we supposed to know about it? How can we have access to that God, to that knowledge of God, to that declaration of God? How can we know? Well, Job knew because of the sacrifice. Remember how it was, Job, it says at the very beginning of Job that, that he would go and offer a sacrifice in case his children might have sinned in their feasting and so that they would be forgiven. So that Job knows the forgiveness of sins by the altar, by the sacrifice. He knows the blood of Jesus. He knows the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. There, in other words, there's a little place, a little humble place, a little altar where the animal is is dying and being and being burnt, where the lamb's blood is. There's a little altar there that says to Job that God considers you righteous. Now, when things were good, it might be that the rest of Job's life also testified to that same fact. In other words, people might have come along and said, look, Job, you've got everything you could possibly want. 
You've got all this riches and all this, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it must be that God loves you. But when things change, that's when the trouble comes. That's when the that's when the temptation comes. Because when things fall apart in the life of Job, now his life preaches that God must be angry. In fact, the 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 friends come along, and they preach that Job, look, God must hate you. God must really despise you. God must have forgotten about you. He must be done with you. You're doomed. Your sins have caught up to you. You're wicked. You're not righteous. And yet Job still has the little quiet preaching of the altar. Now this is the this is the test that we find ourselves in in the midst of suffering. You got all these things preaching God's anger, preaching God's wrath, preaching God's distance, preaching God's forgetfulness, preaching God's wickedness, perhaps even. And you get the little preaching of the altar. Take and eat for the forgiveness of sins. You get the little preaching of the gospel. I forgive you. So you have these two competing sermons. One saying that 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 the trouble in this life is proof of, of, of your wickedness, and the other saying the blood of the Lamb is proof of God's righteousness. And which one are you going to listen to? That that is the question. And we, when you see Job, we in the middle of it, we want to know why. Why Why is all the bad stuff happening? Why are things falling apart? Why do I have so much trouble? And there's simply no answer. His, the, Job's friends say, the, they try to answer the why question. They say the reason why all this bad stuff is happening is because God's mad at you. But at the end, the Lord doesn't come down and say to Job, 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 all this stuff happened because the devil was doing it. I didn't have anything to do with it. Or the Lord doesn't come down and say, Job, why are you worried about all this stuff? I, or He doesn't give him an answer. The Lord does not answer the why question because there's not comfort there. He comes down and he simply gives promises. Now, this is very difficult. I mean, it's it's so difficult that I think only the Holy Spirit can help us manage this, to break out of the idea that there's comfort in the why and to find comfort in the Lord's promises. But that's how the Lord does it. He comes to us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of turmoil, and all of this stuff. He comes to us right in the midst of it, and he says, I'm with you. I'm suffering with you. I suffered for you. I'll come and rescue you. He doesn't answer the question. He just gives us promises. Now, if you want a way to think of it, remember the teeter-totter? The old teeter-totter days when you, when apparently it was less, when it was more dangerous to be a kid? Remember the, the, the old-fashioned playgrounds where you, I mean, you could never get away with that. They had the merry-go-round and the teeter-totter. Sort of death traps. Man, I remember the, I mean, the merry-go-round. We would get that thing going so fast that that you could, 
be holding on with your hands and your feet would be flying out like you're, you know, Superman, anti-gravity kind of stuff. This is preparing for the shuttle launch. Whew. Anyway, you got to picture an old-fashioned seesaw. And you have reason on one side and comfort on the other. You have answers on one side and you have promises on the other. And it just so happens that the Lord has arranged it such that if we have the answers, we actually lose the comfort. But that's not what he gives us. If we have the comfort, then we don't have the answers. So the answers belong to the Lord. They go up. And uh, the, the comfort comes down to us. Now, this why question probably finds its ultimate sort of event in the death of Jesus on the cross. And we remember that there's seven words that Jesus prayed from the cross. And right in the middle, we have this cry of dear election, Psalm 22. We got to start thinking about this because Lent's on the way. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we read Psalm 22, it's stunning because it gives us even more. It tells us what Jesus knows and what he doesn't know. He says, he says, our fathers cried out to you. They cried out and you delivered them. They cried out to you and you heard them. But me, I'm a, I'm a worm and no man. In other words, Jesus knows that he's being forsaken by God. Jesus knows that God is punishing him, that God has turned away from him. Jesus knows that in times past, when sinners have cried out to God, God heard their voice and came and delivered him. He knows that he's crying out to God for deliverance and that God is not coming to deliver him. He knows that he didn't do anything wrong so that he doesn't deserve this, but he doesn't know Right there in the midst of this suffering, he doesn't know why. Now, I sometimes get in trouble from pastors talking about this, other theologians, and so we have to be very, very careful when we're talking about this, and maybe even a little bit precise, because we know that Jesus knew why he died before he went to the cross. We, he told his disciples why he was going to die. He knew why he died at the end of his death. Uh, it is finished. Today you will be with me in paradise. But it seems like during those three hours of darkness, or at least at this moment, that Jesus, through the mystery of the incarnation, through the, through the mystery of the personal union, hid from himself even the knowledge of why he was suffering. He, he didn't just pray, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. But my God, my God, why? Why? I think the reason for this is because if, if Jesus would have known, for example, that he's dying to save sinners, that you can have some comfort in that. I mean, you can do, endure a lot of things if you know that it's for a purpose. Yeah, you can endure a lot of things if you know it's only going to last a little while. Who's this? I, I got hooked into that P90X a few years ago. Vicar got me doing it. 
didn't work that good. It was more like P9X for me. But anyway, one of the things that the guy says on those workout videos is, you can do anything for 30 seconds. <laughs> I think that's slightly exaggerated, but you know the idea. If, if, if Jesus knows that this suffering is just for a little bit, and then he'll be raised from the dead, and by the way, he'll accomplish the salvation of the world, then he can endure just about anything. But all of that is hidden from him. All of it is taken away from his knowledge so that all he knows is that he's suffering God's wrath and he doesn't even see the purpose of it. That's how deep this suffering was for you and for me. And Jesus doesn't get the answer, not then, not to the prayer, not till later. For why? So next time you start asking yourself and those why questions start rumbling around in your head, I, I want to invite you to reflect on that, the, the danger of the why. The temptation that at the end of the why, at the answer to the why question, there's comfort. It's just not the case. The comfort is not at the end of the path marked why, but, the, but at the end of the path marked who. And when we find in Christ the promises of God made more sure, then we find his comfort and his peace. All right, enough on the why question. We've got to take another break, and we're going to come back and, uh, and talk about human sexuality and the questions that arose about that today as well. So stay tuned. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. This break is uh, even shorter than the last one, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. Welcome back to CrossFence. I'm live streaming, by the way, on YouTube. And the only problem with the live streaming is that people can see that it's not actually me playing the guitar riff for the intro. You're listening to CrossFence. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas. So I was at, over at Concordia University, or Texas. It's here in Austin, over in the woods. It reminds me of summer camp going over there. It's wild. And, uh, uh, the parking lot's like, you know, it's all those trees. It's kind of cool. Anyway, I went over there for chapel, and I asked the kids to send some theology questions. And um, 
they gave me a ton of great questions. And there was a, a lot of questions about feelings, a lot of questions about the purpose of things, and then a lot of questions about human sexuality. I think that's a big question. And one of the wild things that's happening now, I mean, this is in the news the last couple of weeks, is that there's all these, I mean, the next thing in the sexual revolution apparently is polygamy. And this comes up as a theological question. Uh, in fact, I got a question today that says, what about all the guys that had multiple wives in the Old Testament? How can we Christians be against polygamy if that happened? And and this question says, if that was okay back then, then how can we say that, for example, two men being married is not okay now? What's the difference? I think the idea is, well, look, we say, we say, well, there was polygamy, but that was cultural. So, But why can't we say that this is our own cultural's, culture's definition of marriage is fine now? So anyway, we got to maybe think about this a little bit. And to take it back a little bit, I'd like to suggest that the key text for Christians when it comes to marriage is Matthew 19 and parallels in other texts where Jesus himself is talking about this. And it goes like this. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. They're always, test, they're always testing him. This, and this test is, I mean, they want him to fail this test. They are testing him not because they want to, they're giving him opportunities to succeed. They are, they are snare setters. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, the Pharisees were interested in no-fault divorce. Now, we mock the ideas of the Pharisees about divorce because they had these ridiculous divorce laws. I mean, there was, the, like on the book, like if the wife burned the dinner, then the, you could divorce her. I mean, it was really bad, and that is horrible. I mean, just tremendously horrible, and yet it's better than what we have. I mean, now you could divorce someone for no reason at all. But anyway, that's what the Pharisees want, no fault of force. And then Jesus answers and he says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. I sometimes wonder if when the Lord said that to Adam and Eve in the garden, if they would say, What's a father? <laughs> Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, there's so much in that particular text, but I'd like to point out that this is the basic idea of marriage from Jesus. And, but Jesus doesn't say, I'm giving this to you new. You didn't know this back then. This is a new revelation that I'm teaching you now. He says, no, no, you got to go back to the beginning to see how it was back there, back in Genesis. And how was it in Genesis? There was Adam, and there was Eve, and there was marriage. The two, not the three, not the four, not the 15 or whatever, the two became one flesh. And that's the way that God intended marriage. Now, can we say then that every polygamous marriage in the Old Testament was a sin? Yes. In fact, we, we should say this. There's really no such thing as polygamy 
uh, because you can only have two becoming one. You just can't logistically manage three or four becoming one. It's just it's just two different twos becoming one at different times and kind of so that so that so that there's really only kind of a dual marriage that's even happening there. Now, one of the things that I I, I want to say was people say, well, if that polygamy, then why doesn't it say it? And I want to say, well, it might. It's stated here explicitly: Genesis one, Genesis two, and Matthew three. It's stated explicitly, but it's not maybe not stated explicitly every time it happens. Whenever King David takes another wife, or when Abraham takes another wife, or something like that, it's not stated explicitly, but it's almost always stated implicitly. And we know because every time there's uh, more people added to a marriage, things just do not go well. <laughs> I mean, things, you never, you never hear, you never hear, and so and so took another wife, and things got better. There's no passage like that. I remember one time, I was telling this story on the, when answering the, a specific question uh, earlier today, uh, that I was over in. Um, I was over in Palestine when I was 19 years old and backpacking around Israel, and I was working at this college. They were building a college, and so I was kind of volunteering to do some construction work. And so a couple of the guys that were there were um, some of the carpenters and one of the and the site manager were uh, Muslim gentlemen. And uh, and one of them, he walked in one day and he just looked. His eyes were 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 uh, uh, irritated, like puffy and red, and and his hair was disheveled, and he just looked. He's dragging in there. He looked exhausted. I said, "Man, you look worn out." And he said, "Yeah, my wives are running me ragged. They want me to marry this friend of theirs." <laughs> and I said, "What kind of what?" What's happening here? Well, apparently this guy has was married to these two girls who were like best friends from high school or something. And they thought it'd be fun basically to to live together. So they got this guy to marry him. He was married to one of them, and she talked him into marrying this other lady. And as he explained to me the situation, is like they went shopping at the mall all day, and they wouldn't let him come home until he'd earned a certain amount of money. So he's working two jobs, getting up at like 5 in the morning, not getting home till 10. And then they want him to – they have another friend that they want him to marry, <laughs> and he doesn't want to do it, but he can't talk him out of it. What a oh, – man, that was a very different perspective. Anyway, it's bad. It's a sin. This is the point. It never goes well. It never it never works out to where everyone says, yeah, this is really great. Now, here, here's the point that I think I was getting to, and it is that I think that most of the time that we see uh, polygamous marriage in the Bible, it's connected to royalty. Uh, and this is and, and so we see it with David. We see it with Saul. We see it with the kings in the north and the south. We see it perhaps more than with anybody else in King Solomon. Uh, and we see it already almost prophesied in Deuteronomy where Moses says of the people, if you get a king, he'll take your sons as his soldiers and your and your daughters as his wives. So there's something particular about royalty that wants to have these polygamous relationships because it wants to have these big, huge, huge families so you can ensure this kind of dynasty uh, that's coming forth from it. And so what... I guess what I'm suggesting is I don't think that if you would have just gone back into the Old Testament and gone to your normal everyday fella, 
that you would find him being married to all these various different different women, that polygamy was mostly connected to the thrones, but the history that we have is mostly connected to these guys, these heads of family. But, it's, it, but even if it's only condemned implicitly in the Old Testament, it's condemned explicitly by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, and by Moses in, in Genesis chapter 1. Now this takes us back to the basic Christian idea about marriage. And that is that the estate of the family, the estate of marriage, is for the purpose of bringing forth and supporting life. And it just so happens that that is possible only with a, a husband and a wife, a mom and a dad. That's the, that's the only way it happens. And even if you somehow technologically separate the momness from a mom and the daddiness from a dad, it's still essentially a mom and a dad. And it proves to be best way to bring forth life, the best way to bring forth children, the best way to support the human flourishing. In fact, it's, I mean, it's not, so it's not only the only way, it's, it's the best way. And so the Lord wants to protect it with chastity. Now, it is in chastity or immodesty or what the Bible calls sexual immorality that's always fighting against God's design. And it's an amazing thing to consider. I was looking at at First Thessalonians uh, uh, earlier today, and in fact, we're going to talk about it a little bit on issues, etc., and how Paul will pull out the basic idea that the the pagan mind is chasing after the lusts of the flesh. So, so for example, he'll say, "This is this is when he's saying, how do we live like a Christian?" And this is the idea. Remember that Jesus teaches us a new way to be human. Paul says, "Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you." in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, so you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now this is a profound, profound insight. That is that we have this, remember we're talking about this kind of the, the sinful flesh, which wants to chase down this way or this way, which wants to do this sin or that sin. But the Lord Jesus comes along and he says, that leads not to life, but to death. And what I intend for you is life. So all of us have a sinful flesh that's going to be pressing us to break all of God's commandments, and especially this, this sixth commandment. But the Lord, when he gives us the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, intends to protect his great gift of marriage for the sake of life. And anything else, any other, say, I think we can say this very plainly, any other expression of human intimacy or human sexuality apart from the sacred gift of marriage is chasing after death. Any expression of human sexuality 
that's not between a husband and, and a wife does not result in life or light, but in darkness. So the Lord in his sixth commandment is protecting this great gift of human sexuality so that we can rejoice in it. And one of the great gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us is the is not only the clarity that this that the lust of the flesh ought to be avoided at all costs, but he also comes along to, and gives us the strength to take up the battle against against immorality, against concupiscence, against false desires. And even, and this is really quite wonderful, the Holy Spirit comes along and, and starts to reshape our own desires so that we want to do the, the right thing, that we love the Lord and his word and his kindness, and we delight in the things that are good and beautiful and true. Remember how we said in the Psalms, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart? Well, God be praised for that. When we delight ourselves in God, then we have that which we most desire. Well, there you go. That's talking about, what were we talking about? I can't even remember where we started. We started talking about feelings. We talked about the danger of the why question and a little meditation on human sexuality. I hope that's helpful for you because we are at the end. I can't believe it. This, bam, like this. Thanks for joining me, though, today on Cross Defense. If you want some more theology, wolfmuller.co is the place to find it. That's not only where the Cross Defense, but the other radio stuff, podcasts, YouTube videos, all that sort of stuff. Some articles are coming out now. Uh, you can find all that there. So go and check in and love to hear from you more. Thanks for thanks for listening. And if there's something helpful here or something helpful for your neighbor, then uh, make sure to share it with them. We can all rejoice together in the Lord's word, in the Lord's kindness, and in the love of Jesus for us. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense. God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks for being a podcast subscriber. It's really great. I really, really appreciate the fact that you every week give me the, the time, the attention of listening as we reflect on these uh, biblical truths. Remember, there's more theology over at wolfmuller.co. Um, starting to do some live streaming of this show on YouTube, so you can see some of that stuff on the YouTube channel. And if you're not subscribed to Wednesday Whatnot, I send out almost on every Wednesday a little newsletter, free newsletter, with some thoughts and tidbits and more more tender for the theological fire in your imagination. So you can subscribe to that at the website as well, wolfmuller.co. Thanks for downloading. As always, if there was something helpful here, please share it with your friends and family, and we'll talk to you next week. God's peace be with you.